So you're telling me you already uh, you already fed your dog and your dog is eating the cat food and your cat ate the remote control and pressed the record button already? Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast, hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies separated by a giant ocean talking cloud, product release management, and technology. I'm Dan Usher, and this is episode 15, recorded on 12 May Austin Powers, but different. Yeah, yeah. My teeth are worse. And you've got gray hair, which, you know, you're obviously far more mature than Austin Powers. But Yes, my maturity speaks for itself. Yeah. So uh, so back here stateside, it's uh, been brutally warm, at least on the East Coast. Uh, the, I guess, Midwest has been taking a brunt of some interesting thunderstorms and out west uh i really don't know got me i don't know you don't have a weather app or something that can tell you you know i actually uh real-time feedback um cute little app that was on the ios or excuse me on the mac os x app store uh it's basically a little weather bar that pops open uh you know through your menu bar uh, uses forecast IO, so it gets all the cute little uh, icons and whatnot from that, as well as shows you know what the temperature is going to be slewing off. Uh, I have not actually figured out how to add in other locations. I'm sure it's possible, but I've been uh, just letting it do the manual location finding. So it seems to work pretty well. Is that a Farinesis that you're using? Uh, you know, I don't think it is. I think it's, uh, it's official name is forecast bar 1.1 powered by forecast IO. Oh, that's boring. You should use Farinesis. Uh, well, we'll have to put a, a link in that to the show notes so that I can find that at a future date. Oh, really? We have show notes? But we do. Where can people find those? Well, you know, Scott, I'm, <clears throat> I'm glad you asked. Usually we, we save this till the end, but, uh. Today, one time special, we'll go ahead and jump into it. So if you're out on the interwebs, which obviously you are since you found us, uh, you can find our show notes over at brewery.fm. Uh, if you are looking for specific show notes for a specific, <coughs> specific episode, you can find them by going to the episode number, uh, which can easily be done by following the pattern of pub.brewery.fm forward slash brewery zero XX, where XX represents the episode number. So for this episode, that would be one five. Uh, if you're trying to find us by other means, though, you can find us on the Twitter at brewery.fm. We like to banter with you there. Uh, we also occasionally will give out free prizes. Um, those are far and few between because Scott doesn't have postage there in Australia, and my postage is mostly with little snowmen. Um, Alternatively, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, just do a search for Brewery FM. We'd love to get your feedback there. Or you can find us on iTunes. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast through that mechanism. Or if you prefer to use your own podcaster, such as Downcast, Pocketcast, or Overcast, uh, you can just point your, uh, you know, point the OPML file that you're looking for to good old uh, Brewery.fm. I think it's uh, something like pub.brewery.fm forward slash brewfeed. So a little bit of follow-up from last week. I uh, went and did a little bit of poking around. I know we had talked a little bit about OneDrive for business and OneDrive and how much storage you get. 
Uh, OneDrive for business, you're still capped out at one terabyte. So until they actually make a, uh, uh, change in the roadmap, that's, I think, what it's going to be. I know the announcement they made last year was that they would be uh, giving unlimited storage to OneDrive through Office 365 for paid consumers um, at some point, you know, doing that also for the business edition. So for business edition, there are some customers that have been upgraded to 10 terabytes, but it's not really? unlimited. Huh. Yes. Interesting. I, I, I've seen some MVPs tweeting about that. You're an MVP. Strange. You should know this stuff. Oh, man, there's just uh, there's so much churn. It's kind of hard to keep up on all of it. But uh, if you if you do have a consumer account and you or you have a university account and you want to get into that uh, unlimited consumer OneDrive for business that it, or OneDrive, excuse me, uh, that'll have unlimited storage. Uh, we have a link in the show notes. If you go to preview.onedrive.com, I believe that'll take you to the page that basically lets you sign up and associate. Uh, if you are not paying for your OneDrive account, though, you will not be able to sign up for that. So if you happen to have accumulated storage along the way uh, through various and sundry offers like, hey, I've got a camera that I want to associate, give me five gigabytes for free, or you bought a uh, uh, you bought a Surface Pro or something like that and they gave you a link, um, those won't cut it. You actually have to be a paying customer to be able to get this. But um, something that was kind of neat that they mentioned last week at Ignite was the ability to upload 10 gigabyte files. And I think the OneDrive client, consumer one, has been able to do that for a while. Uh, but the uh, apparently the next-gen sync client that they talked about uh, in one of the sessions that Ruben was doing um, basically was, you know, to eliminate the file limit uh, issue that there is right now of 20,000 files and it would allow for... Uh, 10 gigabyte files. And I guess that's just because they're doing that consolidation of both the OneDrive for business into the OneDrive client. So hopefully that'll be something nice for us. But, you know, if they've got 10 terabytes on those OneDrive for businesses, that's that's pretty nifty. I got to figure out how to get one of those. Uh, you get an email that says, hey, would you like to enable this feature, you know, in preparation for the rollout of unlimited stuff? And then it comes back and you say, yes, I would love to have that. Um, I don't know what you're going to do with 10 terabytes of MS Word docs at 200k a piece, but I have faith in you. Uh, great. Fantastic. So some of the other uh, kind of <clears throat> more interesting news um, that's been going on. Uh, have you ever seen um, the, have you actually caught up on any of the other stuff that's been coming out for good old uh, Ignite? Go back and watch any more videos? Uh, I've been watching a ton of them, yeah. They've been uh, popping uh, in and out. They've been messing with that RSS feed a bit. Uh, You know, I I see you have a a thing in there that the RSS readers don't seem to pull all the items in, and that's because the Channel 9 team really sucks at putting well-formed XML together. Um, But, you know, all those scripts that go out and download all the videos, like the ones you're using from the NUC, you'll notice that those also just use the same RSS URL. So it's mostly malformed XML, but someday the Channel 9 team will get their crap together and push things out the way they're supposed to be. Uh, I would hope so. I guess looking at uh, looking at that, you know, I went and grabbed the RSS feed and threw it into uh, Feedly and it came back and it said, oh, there's only 19 items. And Ah, was... yes, that's your problem. Don't throw it into Feedly. Throw it into something that understands um, uh, podcast URLs. 
because oh. that's that's a, that's a podcast URL, and you want to pull out the podcast files, whether those are audio or video or whatever it may be. Which is why when you go to the RSS feeds for Channel Nine, they tend to have four or five feeds for every event. They'll have one for like uh, MP4 high for the HD files. They'll have one MP4 low for the low quality files, etc. They'll have audio only, that kind of thing. So I think that was the the real time follow up that I needed. I had been going doing a little bit something different, just grabbing the RSS file and tossing it in. So that clearly explains my negligence to actually filter and find the right file type that I was hoping to get. Yeah, there's uh, typically there's there's uh, five feeds. There's one main feed for the event, which is everything, and every item enclosure within that feed actually contains the four. Um, media types that are available within there, right? So your um, your audio and then your two versions of video, two or three versions, whatever you have in there. And then there are distinct feeds uh, for each media type as well. So if you're looking for just the HD videos, you can go out and grab the feed of just HD videos. So that's actually, like I said, that's, that's what a lot of these scripts that you've seen floating around over the last week um, that go out and download all of the sessions from Ignite if you look at usually the very first line in those PowerShell scripts, uh, they're usually pointing to like the uh, HD version, the MP4 high uh, RSS feed, and they're going out and doing things that way. So if that script is able to do it, then a, a podcatcher uh, or something that specifically knows how to parse RSS 2.0 atom feeds with, with all that stuff uh, should be able to figure it out. Yeah, I guess I kind of chuckled... Uh... Somebody had said, somebody else had posted, well, I'm not going to use that script. I'm not going to download all the videos. I'll just go through and grab the decks that I want. And if there's something that's unclear, I'll go grab the video. Um, all I can say is if they watch the, I think it was the evolution of SharePoint video with Bill Bear and uh, company, that deck in and of itself was like three decks put together. Um, and it didn't transition all that well unless you actually watch the video. And I think you mentioned that last week with a couple of the other ones where just uh, the decks really, really needed the actual, you know, storyline to go along with it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I fall into the camp of uh, if the deck can tell you everything you need, uh, then there's really no point in having the session, right? There, there's no context around it. But if you watch the video and you can get through the video without the deck and still pull out all the salient points, then, um, you know, that was probably a good session because it had uh, some valuable information and insights within it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, <clears throat> it always kind of cracks me up when someone says, hey, we need to see your slides to make sure all the content's there. And I kind of think to myself, well, you can look at the slides, but you're not going to, you're not quite going to get everything. You're going to get uh, the bullets. Um which, you know, also is kind of one of those things where if, uh, if everything you do is in PowerPoint form, um, you probably are using the wrong t tool. So perhaps uh, Microsoft Word with some Word art would be a better option for you. Ooh, or you could put together a sway. Hmm, there we go. Sway back and forth a little bit. Uh, there was somebody who, uh, I think it was Mark Cashman, had a session at the very end of the week, like a... Uh, a recap, which uh, he actually, they have the video uh, is up for it, but they haven't published the link for some reason, but you can go download the video for it. Um, but then he also has a, a big sway out there um, 
which walks through and has all the supporting links and things like that that he covered in that session. Yeah, I think he's going to win the uh, the trip report sway. But I was kind of surprised the uh, one session that I think was also at the end of uh, Ignite last week where they announced that uh, SharePoint Designer was dead. Um, that was Mark Cashman's session, yeah. Yeah, it, it's kind of weird. Uh, somebody else mentioned that the video was there, and then it got pulled down for some reason. So I'm, I'm curious what was going on. Uh, the, the video is still there. If you go to the URI, uh, it, it will pull down. Um, I think they had some trouble with processing it. It has some some skips and jumps and repeats and loops, audio loops and things like that in it. So it uh, might not have been uh, as well produced as they would have liked. Yeah, there was, a, there was a couple other sessions similar to that that were around using uh, groups and the roadmap for groups for Office 365 um, that uh, if you look in the comments, people are you know, kind of asking, hey, when's this going to be posted? And uh, finally, somebody from, I guess, uh, Channel 9 went back and said, uh, yeah, the video didn't quite come out. Uh, we may, you know, if we can't bandage it together, uh, we'll see if we can do a re-record, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. My, my gut feeling is that whatever was set on stage, while you know it might have been rehearsed once or twice, probably isn't going to get redone. Yeah, no. I and my understanding is from those sessions, um, you, you know, they were good to see in person. And then uh, the presenters have been out and about on Twitter as well, just saying, um, "Hey, there there were difficulties." So to those of you that attended, great. Uh, to those of you that did not have the opportunity to attend, uh, we're sorry. Um, that comes out of uh, some of that. It was driven by uh, I'm going to butcher the guy's name. It's it's like Christoph Fessinger or, or yeah maybe uh, I, I think he's uh, XEMer kind of and got and got brought into the fold at Microsoft. Uh, I believe he presented that session. Um, so he's pretty big out there on Twitter and putting stuff out. So you might actually see some re-records of some of that stuff. It'll be interesting to see where they post it, if it ends up in the uh, Ignite feed or if it just goes into a regular kind of Channel 9 on-demand event thing or um, knowing those guys, it'll probably end up lost inside of a Yam Jam or something that nobody attends or knows about. So uh, so Christoph's been around for quite a while. Um, he uh, got his start in Microsoft more on the project server side and then I think uh, in this most recent uh, 2013 deal, um, he did a little dance and went over to the Yammer group. But uh, he's been around at least since 2006, which over there is, you know, quite a while. So other cool things that uh, came out over the past couple of days. Uh, I remember back, you probably may or may not remember this, but uh, WPC last year, there was the Skype translation um, where Skype was doing kind of the live translation uh, back and forth with someone over in Germany. Yep. Yeah. So there was a private preview of that, um, that I guess, you know, different, uh, organizations were a part of and different, uh, consumers were invited to be a part of. Um, apparently that has been released to the world. Um, it requires, I believe windows 8.1 or windows 10. Um, but that is, uh, something that's out there in the wild. Uh, if you've got folks that don't speak your language, uh, you can still communicate with them using the Skype translation services. So it's pretty wild. Um, I would like to try it out. I just don't know who I'd call. <laughs> the Ghostbusters. There we go. Call the Ghostbusters. Because, um, I mean, they're in control. So 
Well, I, you asked who you're going to call, and uh, that was my immediate answer. So, mm-hmm. I wonder if it. Uh, I wonder if it tra- translates to Australian. That might be uh, pretty amazing. Uh, it'd be more interesting if it translated to New Zealander. Mm, I should ask uh, Chris Johnson about that one. Uh, ask him over a flat white. Yeah, over a flat white. Right, right. Um, so, jumping back to kind of more of the general news things going on. Uh, this morning in the DC area was interesting to uh, wake up to the news of AOL being bought by Verizon for a mere $4.4 billion. So to me, this is kind of one of those where I look at it and I scratch my head and I really just go, wow, all those dial-up you know, folks that are still using AOL, uh, they're being bought for $4.4 billion. What's going on here? And then uh, you know, I take a step back and I remember that AOL is really, you know, more that web content company that does a ton of advertising. And I think most people don't realize that. Um, I think most people think of Google as being really, you know, the folks that are hot and heavy on the web for advertising. But AOL is definitely one of those companies that's uh, been in this realm for quite a while. Yeah, they also own a number of popular blogs. Uh, so they run uh, TechCrunch and Engadget, and uh, I believe the Huffington Post is under AOL. So it's everything from tech to lifestyle, uh, kind of a, a, across the board, right? So uh, I had seen that Verizon might have bought them for some of the video properties. Um, so maybe it makes sense for them there to push that over into Fios land or someplace else. But you know, at the end of the day, $4 billion for Verizon – it's a drop in the bucket. That's probably what a couple days worth of uh, uh, subscriber costs for you know their wireless companies, maybe. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I mean, at some level, it made sense for them to do it, right? So they went ahead and did it. Um, I think it'll be more interesting out by you because you've got the Verizon. Uh, well, you've got the big Verizon call center, and then the AOL headquarters right there in. Uh, just outside of Herndon, they're both right next to each other. So maybe they'll consolidate the campuses and form a mega campus. That'd be uh, that'd be pretty cool. That or they'd uh, they'd take the data centers and expand the footmark or the footprint. Yeah, the footmark, um, the footprint of some of the other you know companies that uh, Verizon has acquired over the past couple of years. Yeah, maybe. Uh, who knows? I it, it it'll be interesting to watch and and see what happens with it, but. At the end of the day, I think nobody really knows right now. Um, Tim Armstrong sticks around. He, he makes it through yet another acquisition thingamabobber um, and, and continues to own that kind of content management side of things. So uh, we'll see. Probably more interesting for you in that area. Not so interesting for folks outside the U.S. Doesn't affect them too much. Too much that you know. Um, some other things that uh, Verizon's been up to in the near recent um, timeline. Uh, a couple weeks ago, they announced that they were switching over to software-defined networking architecture, which a uh, pretty cool way of doing things. I know that most companies have been slowly but surely switching over to software-defined networking um, instead of just you know kind of relying on uh, orchestration of how network flows are done. Uh, with, I guess, manual routing and whatnot. So it's it's cool to see them actually get more into this uh, agile way of doing things um, and dynamically, you know, 
allocating resources to handle loads. Um, I'd, I'd be curious, you know, how they're implementing this, how they're actually making it worthwhile to the end user. Um, obviously, we hear about Verizon doing traffic optimization now and then, but uh, I guess I'd be curious how this helps their story of uh, allowing uh, people to get more use or more bang for their buck out of their uh, FIOS connection of some sort um, rather than, you know, what they were a couple months ago. Well, all these things don't need to be about the user, right? They can just be about kind of operational agility within the business. And if you look at a way a lot of these kind of massive infrastructures are run internally, like uh, product offerings like uh, AWS and Azure aren't possible without an SDN stack, right? So this is kind of a critical business component just to being able to have a, a, just the operational agility you need in your infrastructure to move things around on a dime. And that doesn't always necessarily need to be about your end users. That could be about internal line of business stuff or anything else. Um, it's always nice to see big organizations like Verizon, you know, when they start to adopt uh, kind of these these more modern agile principles, right? Uh, hopefully that means the uh, the business is growing up and keeping up with the times. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. If you look at uh, Azure, for instance, um, a lot of their, like you mentioned, SDN, uh, a lot of their uh, components on the back end, they're now offering out to kind of the end user, even though at the time uh, they were building them out just for themselves. So uh, perhaps, perhaps sometime down the road, um, Verizon will have something cool that they're building through SDNs. Um, they can offer out to the rest of us. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe. I, I, I don't know that too many of their FiOS customers are looking for uh, SDN stuff in the consumer class, right? Maybe in the business class, but business class FiOS is uh, pretty pretty pricey. Maybe that's what I should have got. Huh. Oh well. Yeah, do, do do they run data centered as a home? Uh, you know that would be a neat service if they did. I'd, I'd be I'd be first in line for that, or probably second behind uh, uh, Sean McDonough. Yeah, maybe you know, that'll let you guys get rid of some of those uh, redundant uh, T1 lines you have running into the house. Yep, that you know. Um, so you know, in that computing world, uh, I guess they they announced this during build. Um, the Windows 10 for IoT on Raspberry Pi 2. Uh, you don't happen to have a Raspberry Pi 2, do you? I don't. So I don't even have a Raspberry Pi 1. I just like watching all of you folks geek out on it and see what comes out of it. I've, I've been keeping up with the previews just to kind of see what that IoT server is going to end up looking like and where it's at in the stack. So um, it looks like you can do some interesting things with it today if you have the hardware for it. Like they don't have the Wi-Fi drivers and things like that going yet. So uh, you got to be wired in, have Ethernet and, and a couple of other things. But um, being able to run that like node server really quickly on this, that little device is kind of compelling, right? For a, for a $30 device, it's, it's pretty nifty. Yeah, so that that uh, price is a little bit uh, a little bit off because uh, <clears throat> you know the device might be thirty dollars, but they have a eight gig SD card, and that's going to you know put you out four and a half dollars, and then you have to have the appropriate AC adapter because that doesn't come with it, and you know your 
kid's probably going to stomp on it by accident, so you have to get a little case for it, which is a couple bucks. So when you walk away from it, it's, it's more like 50 or 60, but you're right. I mean, to be able to run, you know, a node server um, on top of Windows 10 is pretty amazing for that cost. Uh, I think Andrew Connell did a uh, demonstration of Node running on top of Raspberry Pi at, uh, at Build. So um, the technology is definitely there. It's definitely coming along. Uh, if you're interested in setting one up when you get back to the States, uh, Scott Hanselman has a pretty robust uh, step-by-step how-to. Although I want to say if you go out to the Windows Insider um, page for IoT, uh, they also have a pretty significant uh, you know step-by-step on how-to. Uh, so it, it's not too difficult. Um, does take a little bit of time, and you do have to have the latest and greatest build of Windows 10 to be able to do it. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if that's the thing for me. Uh, I, you know, as long as I can still go to ThinkGeek and buy Anoyatrons and just keep sticking them to the fridge, then I'm, I'm good. I uh, I got to pick some of those up for SharePoint Saturday in New York. Remind me to do that. Yeah, you know, I, I keep two on the fridge and one of them goes off occasionally and it's like ah man a cricket made it into the house again but no it's just it's it's the annoyatron being annoying Mm. let let me tell you those uh, those devices are not wife approved i'm sure they're not roommate approved either man um (laughs) but uh you know speaking of tiny computing so we've got the the raspberry pi 2 we've got the annoyatron from think geek which is one of my personal favorites um, there's also the chip computer that is out on Kickstarter. Uh, have you had a chance to go check that out yet? Of course not. I, I don't even know where, I don't even know where you come up with half this stuff. So <clears throat> there was a, there was a bunch of folks that were like Raspberry Pi 2, psh, that's so old school. Um, and they were talking about the chip, which is effectively a little breadboard, um, integrated circuit that they're running at about $9 is what they're saying it's going to cost. Um, basically, it's uh, it's like a 1.2 gigahertz or 1.0 gigahertz uh, processor. Yeah, 1 gigahertz processor, half a gig of memory, and a 4 gig uh, storage chip on it. So effectively, you know, it has many of the same capabilities that you have with uh, Raspberry Pi. Um, it's got Wi-Fi built in, unlike the Raspberry Pi, which you have to go get a little EDMAX USB chip. Um, and it has Bluetooth, which I don't think the Raspberry Pi has. So uh, it's got some capabilities out there. Of course, at the moment, this is vaporware. Somebody's put together a couple of them, and they've put it up on Kickstarter, hopefully to get more. Uh, so who knows? This might be you know the next uh, thing that you're using on the back of your TV to uh, run whatever your favorite shows are. Yeah, until the Raspberry Pi 3 comes out with Wi-Fi built into it, and then this is dead. Yeah, the Raspberry Pi 3 is probably going to end up being, you know, a little USB form factor uh, with an HDMI connector, and that's probably about it. But wait, that's the Fire Stick. Never mind. Those work pretty stellar, though. Yeah, it's true. Um, So, you know, we, we live in this world of processing. We live in this world of little chips on sticks. Uh, you remember when Amazon brought out their GPU compute stuff where you could uh, get processes that uh, you could get, I guess, uh, virtual machines, EC2 instances that also had that uh, that GPU built onto it so you could use it for, like, uh, high-speed computation? Yeah, and AWS is still one of the only ones that really has that offering. 
um, it's, it's really compelling stuff, especially if you look at the pricing and uh, the way they do some of the RIs and uh, other instance types around that. Um, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's definitely cool. I wish Azure had something like that, but maybe someday they'll get there. So I wonder, you know, from a from an attack vector perspective, what AWS is doing about the uh, the malware that's out there for the NVIDIA GPU that apparently is out in the wild right now. Uh, so apparently, it, there's also one for Windows, <laughs> um, but I guess most folks are just realizing, oh crap, it's out there for. Uh, kind of the reason that I think a lot of the MacBooks um, have NVIDIA, NVIDIA chipsets on them um, for the higher-end MacBook Pros. And so uh, folks are finding that the MacBook Pros have that, uh, I guess, uh, what they're calling jelly, or uh, I've seen a couple instances refer to it as jellyfish. Uh, I think that was the SANS Institute in, uh, Internet Storm Center had a little piece on it this morning um, about the GPU uh, malware. So uh, I don't know. Um, you know, if it is also out there in the wild for Windows, that could probably cause some pretty pretty big problems for AWS. Hmm. Uh, what does InfoSec Taylor Swift have to say about it? Uh, you know, I haven't checked with Taylor Swift. Um, any real-time feedback on that? No, but uh, I think that's some homework for us because th- that would be my definitive kind of response for uh, something like that. Taylor Swift is the best place to go for your information security needs. Uh, you know, I, I would not disagree with you on that one one bit. She's the bomb diggity. She knows it all. Uh, yeah. What, what else have we had going on? Anything in the uh, in the, the other worlds that we live in? The other worlds that we live in. Well, you know, it's funny you mention that. Um, you have your... Uh, you have your towel ready to wave over your head for the Vogon invasion? Uh, you always have to have a towel with you. Be ready for travel at any time. Um, and I'm still waiting for my up, you know, my latest update to my Hitchhiker's Guide to come through. But I'm, I'm sure it'll get there. Well, uh, apparently an asteroid that passed by back in 1999, I guess, 16, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, uh, FN 53 um, will be coming back on Thursday. Um, it's something like a kilometer and a half wide, uh, zooming along at twice the speed of this planet, something like that. Um, anyway, uh, there are a lot of folks out there that are kind of going, wow, that's coming really close. Um, interesting to go look at the JPL data and back in 1999, apparently it came even closer. So... Uh, it's actually getting further away from us, and it's something on the order of like 11 million kilometers away. Um, so it's it's a fair distance away. Um, when it came through back in 99, I think it was something like five or six million kilometers. So uh, hopefully, you know, if you're listening to this on Friday, that means we made it. Um, if not, uh, so long and thanks for all the fish. I was going to say, do we all need to break out in song? I think so. I mean, that would be the apropos thing to do. Um, you know, uh, I think we were talking about that on Twitter the other day with uh, always look on the bright side of life. So, uh, yes, the Monty Python special. Yep. It's like the Christmas spectacular, but with more presents. Right, right, exactly. 
So that's uh, that's the only thing I know of going on in quote unquote other worlds, unless you're talking about uh, playing games in uh, SimCity. No, I know nothing about SimCity. So uh, should we get back to things we know about? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I know you know on this wonderful planet we live on, uh, occasionally we do have the need to be able to go watch television shows that are broadcast in other countries. Um, and, uh, you know, one way around that, of course, is having an IP address in that country's network space, right? Uh, usually that's the best way to uh, avoid the geo-restriction stuff, geo-blocking. Yeah, so, I mean, if I was in Germany and I wanted to catch, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, um, pretty much the only way I could do that would be through some sort of VPN connection, I'm guessing, right? Uh, there's a couple different ways to do this. I'm pretty well versed in geoblocking living in Australia, you know. Hmm. Uh, so I guess most of those usually require like configuration of your router with WRT or the, what is it, tomato, um, or doing something with like a third party agent. Uh, yeah, typically, or, uh, the way I like to go about it is with a DNS service. So that way we don't route through the overhead of a full-time VPN solution, right? So um, being in, um, let's call them internet-constrained areas like Australia, where everything's eventually got to hit a pipe that goes out uh, into the ocean at some point. Uh, things can get a little choked up at some point. So you, you want as little overhead as possible. Um, so I, I tend to use DNS services. Uh, and what they do is you, you'll just go onto your router and say, I always want to pull DNS uh, from this place, and they take all your DNS requests, and if you request a resource in uh, a particular locality, like uh, if I say I want to watch something uh, on the BBC uh, out, of, um, uh, out of the UK, um, it'll actually take that specific request for that specific video and go ahead and route it and make it look like I'm coming from the UK, but the rest of my traffic continues to live on this side with me. So uh, it's a little less impact uh, on the bandwidth side to uh, you know, a little less overhead, things like that, to stick with the DNS service. VPNs can be nice, you know, if you want to privatize the whole thing. But if you're just trying to watch a video and get around a, um, uh, a geo restriction, then DNS is the way to go. Hmm. No, it's, a, it's an interesting way of kind of putting it. I know for me, I was hoping to see... Uh, be able to catch some of the adverts uh, over in London a while back just because I had heard that uh, they had some silly things they were running. And so I remember going through and trying out uh, Tunnelblick um, with a VPN service, and that seemed to work pretty well. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of dropped that after uh, realizing, eh, I'm never really going to use this, and it's just an extra agent on my machine. Um, it was interesting this morning to see that uh, the guys over at TunnelBear um, built a Chrome extension. So if you want to, you know, use a VPN just through your uh, your browser, your Chrome browser, uh, you can run that. You don't have to install any of the third-party software. So I thought that was uh, a neat innovation of sorts. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of these services. So um, I, I use a company out here called uh, Gitflix. Uh, so they are primarily a um, kind of a DNS forwarder, right? So they'll take care of that geo-restriction thing. Uh, but a lot of these DNS companies also offer VPN solutions um, as part of the whole thing. Um, and then depending on the services you utilize, like Netflix, 
Um, so for Netflix, I still subscribe through the U.S. because I have U.S. credit cards and things like that. Um, but at any time, I can just go into the Gitflix dashboard and I say, I want to make it look like I'm coming from uh, the U.K. And then uh, I immediately hop on to the U.K. version of Netflix. Or I can say, I want to look like I'm coming from uh, someplace else. Maybe I want to look like I'm coming from Australia because there's a particular Australian show we want to watch that's only available on the Australian version of Netflix. And they actually let you hop through uh, regions like that without any issue. Um, it's more about just having a subscription. And some of the other places do this as well. Um, you know, I find I've, I have a lot of trouble downloading like games on the Xbox and things like that due to geo restrictions. Uh, so sometimes uh, VPNs can help out for stuff like that. But they're, there's, they're, they're definitely getting more consumer friendly, right? E easier to spin up and, and turn on. Uh, and, and pretty cheap too. You can, you know, things like TunnelBear, you pay a little bit more for it because of the convenience factor. Uh, but if you know how to roll your own, you know, you can buy a pretty robust full-time VPN for 30 bucks a year. Not bad at all. Hmm. You'll have to, uh, you'll have to show me that when you get back sometime. Oh yeah. I'll still have all those subscriptions. Uh, take a while <laughs> to shut all that stuff off. Can, uh, can watch some Australian TV from Virginia. Sweet. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're going to want to do that. <laughs> Uh, craziness. Um, so I think that's all we really had in the, uh, the core general news. Uh, what do you think we should hop into next, Scott? Uh, you want to talk about OneDrive for business and custom metadata? That's one of your kind of fun things, right? One of your mm -hmm. areas of expertise. Yeah, good old OneDrive. Um, so if you have not gone through the pain of, uh, figuring out that, you don't have additional columns and whatnot inside of OneDrive for Business. Um, surprise, you don't have the ability to go create additional columns inside OneDrive for Business unless you really want to go programmatically hack it. Um, not to say that you shouldn't do that, but it's typically one of those things that uh, I would not recommend going and doing um, because it is kind of that uh, that special synchronization document library that you've got. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those where you... Uh, you don't want to mess with that too much. Um, so, you know, people, they reach out and they say, well, I've got additional, you know, metadata beyond just the basic fields that I've got. Uh, what do I do from there? Um, well, Microsoft realized, hey, you know, this is a problem. Um, how can we get around this? And how can we make that, uh, that information uh, still promotable and still show up in search results and whatnot. And so you can do it. Uh, it requires a little bit of PowerShell, a little bit of code, uh, but you can basically enable a couple different features on your OneDrive for business to make it so that your metadata will show up. And the metadata that I'm talking about uh, is that metadata that shows up in your document information panel. So if you, in uh, you know previous versions of SharePoint and Office, uh, were using the quote-unquote dip, uh, you can go through and use that metadata um, and add <coughs> add different fields and whatnot in there, and then they basically stick with the document. Um, if you happen to have columns that have those names, voila, uh, all of a sudden you have document uh, data getting populated into your SharePoint system, and if you fill it out in there, it tends to travel with the document when you take it out of SharePoint. So uh, you can use that custom metadata inside of your documents and make it available inside of your Office 365 OneDrive for Business. But again, uh, the TechNet article, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, your end users are probably going to look at it and go, uh, what is this stuff? So, 
Yeah, it's a little rough, right? I, you know, the, the simple answer would have been uh, maybe build this capability into the sync client, like it was built into SharePoint workspaces. That, that you know, that that would have been uh, the easy answer and, and the path of least resistance. Um, but to turn this stuff on is a little uh, a, a little rough, right? You got to use some PowerShell and some CSOM and some other things. Uh, and then you're limited to what is supported uh, within the dip panel itself, right? So, uh, so those dip panels are supported in Word, PowerPoint, and Excel. Um, and technically, they're really just like info path forms, but you know they only support like common metadata types, dates and strings, really. And um, you know sometimes they have trouble with taxonomy fields and things like that. So. Uh, might not be worth the pain of going there, especially when you think about you have to configure this for each and every individual user because we're talking about OneDrive and personal sites. And personal sites implies that these are a user-by-user user thing, right? They're, it's not going to be a setting at the tenancy level and, and let it all bleed down and, and do what it needs to do. Um, not, not a really great story there still. Yeah, I think uh, I was given a presentation at uh, FedSpug maybe about two months ago. And I remember I was kind of going through some of the limitations of OneDrive for Business. And I mentioned, you know, hey, you can't make custom permission levels. You're stuck with the two that you've got. And P.S., you really should not, cannot uh, add custom, you know, metadata columns uh, into your OneDrive for Business. And a couple heads popped up and said, oh, I'm sure you can. And I kind of chuckled and said, ah, good luck. So, yeah, it's still not a good story. Um, hopefully when uh, they merge in some of the other stuff, uh, when that, uh, with that next-gen sync client with SharePoint 2016, maybe we'll, see, uh, maybe we'll see a better picture of what can be done there. Yeah, I, you know, I think part of it is still information management, right? And you want documents to uh, live in the right place. So typically things that are going to need a bunch of extra metadata around them, those might be better suited to live uh, in a team site or a group site or someplace else that's not your personal kind of temporary scratch space in OneDrive. You know, they, they, it's confusing, right? Because they give you all that space there and they say, here, you know, um, someday you're going to have unlimited space, but this is really unlimited space for you. It's not unlimited space for your team or, um, you know, it's not meant to be a file share, things like that. I know um, we still have conversations or you'll get somebody who walks up to you at a user group event or uh, at a SharePoint Saturday or something like that. And they ask and they say, well, how do I migrate my on-premises file share to OneDrive for business? <laughs> well, uh, you don't because that's not a great idea. And here's why. Um, Microsoft hasn't done a great job selling that story. Um, and probably us as consultants or, you know, you know, kind of purveyors of the service, we're probably not doing the best job of that either. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think uh, a lot of the time we tend to say, oh, we can do everything. We can take your data from point A to point B. We can, you know, apply all this additional metadata to it. And then when the rubber hits the road, it, uh, unfortunately, the actual reality of it uh, comes to fruition and we start having to pour drinks. So, yeah, you know, if you watched any of those sessions at Ignite or if you had a chance to go back and review them, uh, 
that experience in OneDrive, just outside of the sync client, but the actual OneDrive experience online uh, is going to be changing a little bit, right? It looks like it's going to be uh, coming over to the consumer side a bit more. So kind of big blocky icons, and it's not going to look like SPO so much. So maybe that helps drive that messaging with users a little bit as well that, hey, um, this is just a storage area. It's not SharePoint because all your SharePoint stuff looks totally different and it's over here. This is, you know, OneDrive and it's your personal content and, and everything else. You know, though, I would I would welcome that with uh, wide arms. And I say that just from the aspect of uh, so many folks get confused when, you know, they go in and they share a document and they don't realize they just broke inheritance on just that document. Um, and then they go and they share a folder and they go, well, that document's inside the folder. Why isn't it inheriting the permissions? And because you turn around and you tell them, well, it's SharePoint and you broke the inheritance. So that's why. Um, so I, I personally, I would love the consumer version. I would welcome it with wide open arms. Someday, Dan, it'll be there for you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but you know, it's, remember, it's going to be an Office 365 first, and then maybe someday it'll come back to on-premises as well. Yeah, and you know, at least uh, at least you know we're starting to see that transition. Um, we may not see it in our sync client today, but at least we can go start toying around with the OneDrive API, which you know is both the consumer and business uh, lopped together into one. Yeah, it's tough. You know, we go back and forth on this stuff quite a bit, but um, I think part of it is going to be folks are going to have to just stay updated as well, right? Especially on premises uh, deployments. So, you know, that uh, kind of upgrade train is continuing to roll on. So we had uh, a couple of security updates and another CU come out this month. so uh, it fixes kind of that SP1 baseline problem and some other things they had going on from the April CU, which broke some stuff. And, um, you know, Bill Bear promised this stuff would be getting better. So hopefully that actually does become the case at some point here. That'd be really nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious if there's any way, uh, you know, down the road they're going to be able to adopt uh, the whole patching technique that they're, you know, advertising with SharePoint 2016 um, and backporting that to 2013, uh, you know, since they, they said, hey, uh, we're going to backport this cloud uh, service application to allow for uh, blended search. Uh, you know, it'd be really cool if they came back and said, hey, we realized that the patching uh, sucked for 2013. Uh, we're going to fix that for you as well. But I can, I guess, dream about that one. Yeah, you know, you can always dream. Just wave your magic wand and stuff will happen at some point, maybe. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what they do once that last piece of functionality comes out for 2013. So that uh, hybrid integration for the cloud SSAs and for Delve uh, to see what happens there. Um, You know, if they continue to release security updates, because at some point, once 2016 is released, 2013 is going to EOL. And once we hit end of life for that, then, you know, we kind of, Keep going and, and move forward the other way. Did you have any chance? Do you have a chance to watch any of the sessions on the cloud SSA? Uh, only the one little bit that Bill Bear showed off, I think, in the Monday presentation, where uh, you know he was showing the blended search results. That was about it, and it 
kind of cracked me up because uh, I remember SharePoint Fest DC. Somebody asked, "Hey, uh, what's that? What's that experience like?" And flat out told him it was like the federated search we've had since SharePoint 2007, and that my hope would be one day they'd fix it. So, boom, uh, my wish came true. Yeah, the uh, th- there's a great session out there um, that does a deep dive on the cloud SSA and only the cloud SSA and what goes into it. So it was a uh, Office 365 support engineer uh, and uh, an engineer from the FAST product group or um, kind of a, a holdover from that. So uh, one of the engineers from, from Norway. So uh, so they went through and did this uh, great session and uh, she was talking about uh, kind of the, the, the different pipelines and the, and the way things come together. Um, within the SSA. So I was a little bit worried about crawls and things like that. Obviously, there's some uh, some performance considerations, right? When we think about um, actually, uh, we, we have to do kind of the, the metadata extraction. So if we reach into a document um, within that processing pipeline, we actually need to pull the metadata out and then the metadata needs to go in the index and then we need to move on to the next document, which means we need to open it up and extract some data and do the same kind of thing. Um, so your on-premises SSAs are going to continue to do all that entity extraction. So you're still going to have an SSA on-premises um, no matter what. It's just that the index is going to live in the cloud. So rather than having uh, that cloud-based SSA do all the crawling, um, you're going to have your on-premises SSA do the crawling, and it's going to send uh, just the document metadata up to Office 365. Um, so it, the other thing was, uh, you know, for hybrids in the past, um, I know you and I have spent a bit of time with folks, um, kind of going over requirements and here's what you need for reverse proxies and all that other stuff. Um, effectively, this is just an outbound connection, right? It's just a TCP connection. It goes out. Um, you can actually see the requests go out in Fiddler if you're watching them from, uh, your crawler. So you'll, you'll see the metadata and, and that request being pumped out to office 365 and your tenancy up there. Uh, and what it's doing is as it's sending that, uh, metadata piece up, it's just building out the entire index up in the cloud. And then you're effectively left with no index, uh, on premises. So you don't have that kind of storage requirement anymore either. Cause there, there was a bunch of overhead, uh, to doing search storage, uh, and especially search performance, right? We had some different considerations for those databases, uh, different IOPS requirements and things like that over uh, just our regular content databases. So it's really nice. It doesn't look like it's going to require uh, a reverse proxy anymore. It's using uh, just Azure uh, ACS uh, sitting in the middle. So ACS is kind of doing your server-to-server trust thing for you or your farm-to-farm trust. And then uh, the way they're getting out and saying, hey, you can do searches in uh, 2010 against the same index, uh, is they're just publishing that same search application out to a 2010 farm. So, you know, that, that's how they're getting around, not having to go back and do patches in 2010 or things like that. Um, ultimately, you're going to have a search service application that lives on-premises, and then anything internal that you can publish that search application to, awesome, they'll be able to go ahead and consume it. And then for everything that lives up in the cloud, uh, you, you know, you're just going to be pulling out of that index anyway. So it's really nice to have the blended results. I think one thing that they glossed over a bunch in that session, um, you know, they mentioned that, hey, we did SSO um, so that they could have a a seamless experience, right? So 
there's a bunch of things that are built into Office 365, like WAC. Uh, so you've got Office Web Apps built in. So those previews are going to work if you're sitting at home and uh, you're, you're, or if you're sitting on premises and you're in the office, things like that, as long as you're signed in and you, ha and you have a valid token and everything like that. Um, this is going to bring a bunch of uh, infrastructure headaches for a lot of folks, I think. Uh, because now we're back to, uh, hey, you know, they made they made things like uh, AED sync a bit easier, and and now we can do a password sync and a bunch of other things, and maybe you don't need to do SSO anymore. And now we're back to the point where you do need to do SSO, and if you're going to do these blended results, you really need to think about what's going to happen when users aren't on premises and uh, they go home and they do a search in Office 365, and there's this link to just uh, HTTP slash SharePoint. Um, and they're not going to have DNS for that unless they're VPNed in or a bunch of other things. So, uh, like I said, they, they glossed over it a little bit. It, it's going to take a bit more work than folks think. Um, but also, I think it gets it, it tends to be uh, easier or more well-known work because it's not dealing with uh, all the certificates and, and uh, the reverse proxies and things that we had before. So you uh, you bring up kind of an interesting point. Um, if one of the one of the items they do have in the deck and in the video um, <clears throat> over on uh, slide twenty, they have one little line item, and I'm guessing, like you said, they kind of gloss over it and they say additional requirement for search previews, reverse proxy back to on-premises WAC server. So whoops, yeah. So you still do need that reverse proxy if you want to get back to previews of documents that are stored on premises. Um, and like you mentioned, uh, that whole hybrid story of Azure Active Directory Sync with DirSync or AD, AD uh, Sync tools, whatever the name of it is this week, um, you're still going to have to deal with that mess. So I'm guessing um, they probably didn't try doing this with Directory uh, Sync with Password Sync. They probably only tried it with SSO. Um, yeah, they did. They did SSO for the whole session because they really wanted to be able to sell that seamless integration story. Yeah, um, so we're back to ADFS again. Yep, back to ADFS. Back to having some sort of reverse proxy. Uh, so there is a little bit of kit that you've got to set up to actually get it working. But I think it might actually be worthwhile. I mean, if I don't have to go down the path of doing a full two way, um, might be worth it. Yeah, the, the story is really starting to come together, right? Because now we've got the uh, uh, the express route for Office 365, so we can cut down on some of that latency there. So we might actually be able to push that metadata up to uh, our tenancies a little bit quicker. Um, one thing they didn't talk about was if we could, I, I, I don't remember if it was in there, but connecting multiple on-premises SSAs to one index in the cloud, right? Can I get to that point where I can build a master index? Maybe I have two or three farms on-premises that serve different functions, but I want them all to have their metadata up there and uh, what's going to happen that way? Because there's all sorts of weird limitations and things, you know, with DirSync and, uh, you know, really you can't connect to multiple tenancies. And, um, you know, so what happens with your identity on-premises? Do you have multiple forests? How are you, how are you going to change things around? So um, I, I'd be a little bit more bullish on it just because, you know, you know the hard thing about hybrid in the past was always um, it was you have to change your business to go to the cloud. And this is really more about, well, let's just bring the cloud to you, which is um, not only a little bit of an easier sell, but 
it actually probably makes a lot more sense for uh, a, a lot of organizations. So it's, it's a nice pivot on the part of Microsoft and kind of a, a, a good concession for them to be making. Yeah, I mean, one of the other things that, uh, you know, keep <clears throat> be mindful of is uh, you and I probably work in environments where they do have multiple forests with multiple SharePoint instances that somehow tie all back together into the same uh, organization. Um, I know they talked about having content sources that uh, reached across, you know, multiple different systems. So like a SharePoint 2010, a SharePoint 2007, a SharePoint 2013, uh, file shares, other systems. My guess is, is their, their hope or their intent is that they're all uh, on one corporate network and not subdivided up into multiple different domains. Um, the other thing that I think Perhaps they didn't spend a lot of time on. I know Bill Bear mentioned this uh, in passing. Um, was the DLP, uh, the data loss prevention? So the fact that you can do those searches, uh, since you have that consolidated search index up in SharePoint Online, uh, you can do those DLP searches, and it will because your search index is there and it has all of your uh, on-premise information in it. You can you know go through and do those searches against that data as well without having to. Uh, do some wonky thing of installing a agent or something on premises. Yeah, it has some interesting impacts, right? For doing e-discovery and some of the other things. Uh, I, I didn't see too much around how once you go down this kind of path of, uh, they really didn't talk about it in the session, right? But if you've got this consolidated search index, uh, how that is going to affect things like e-discovery. Because if I do like an in-place hold, I've got to set some uh, properties uh, actually on that SharePoint site collection to create like the in-place hold libraries and things like that. So, uh, you know, having the ability to turn that hold on from Office 365 and then have it reach all the way back to on-premises, uh, you know, that really wasn't spelled out too well. Um, you know, you mentioned all the different content sources and things like that. So I said, you know, they didn't talk about the multiple SSA story going up to one cloud SSA. Um, but the way they are handling that is your on-premises SSA, that singular instance that lives in SharePoint 2013 or SharePoint 2016, that SSA has all your different content sources in it. So SharePoint 2013 had the ability to crawl 2013, 2010, and 2007 farms and file shares. So the way they're doing that is they're saying you have one 2013 farm, it has one enterprise SSA, that SSA is doing all your crawling and metadata extraction and then it's responsible for sending all that metadata up. So, uh, you know, I, th I think customers throughout TAP will probably come up with some really interesting scenarios uh, that maybe the product team will have to work around a little bit to accommodate. So what you're saying is we'll find out more over time? Uh, yeah, maybe, I guess. Uh, we, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Uh, and they're only sharing so much at this point which is quite a bit more than they've ever shared in the past, right? So nice. Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably one of the things that I've been impressed upon is uh, Microsoft in the past would always kind of be very hush-hush about uh, what their roadmaps were and whatnot. And uh, Ruben Krippner in the OneDrive session, uh, I kind of I laughed because when I opened you know, the deck and was following along with the video, I almost thought to myself, did he mean, did he mean to, you know, have all this text on the very first slide that says, yeah, we realize that the OneDrive for Business client has issues. It's our number one priority in fixing. 
yada, yada, yada. I was like, man, it's a lot of text for a single slide. Usually, you know, this might be a voice track and nothing more, but I guess they, they're putting it in stone that, you know, they realize what the problems are and they are flat out saying, Hey, here's, here's what we're going to do to fix it instead of hiding behind a veil and hoping that uh, we forget about it. So props to them for, uh, for being forthcoming for that, uh, that side of things. Yeah, it's a brave new world. It is. Um, so a couple quick little things before we uh, wrap up. Um, some events going on in the area. Uh, primarily, uh, you know, if you are looking for getting up and running on some of this different stuff. Uh, last week we mentioned uh, the build tour um, that Microsoft is doing. Uh, it looks like I may not actually get to go up to New York City next week, but uh, so be it. I'm sure that I'll still just be able to spend some of the time uh, reviewing content that was at the actual build event. Um, but those are going on. You can find that out. Uh, what is that? Build.com or buildwindows.com? Uh, build 15, right? Yeah, build 2015. Um, so uh, that's going on. There's also these office dev camps. So I know you said Jeremy Fake would buy you a drink every single time you said dev.office.com. Uh, if you go out to dev.office.com slash events, uh, you can find many of the different things that are going on in terms of those office dev camps. Uh, if you're in the D.C. area, there's one on the 1st of June, or you can come to Rest in Spug uh, for a session. Um, there's one this week. Uh, perhaps you'll get to hear this before it happens. Um, <clears throat> up in Auburn, Pennsylvania on the 14th. So those are also going on. And then... Uh, I don't know if I'll get out to this in Vegas. I don't know if you'll get out to this in Vegas, but the AWS reInvent conference, uh, they are open for business in terms of taking your money, um, i.e. registration, or I guess EG registration. Uh, that is something that is typically a very cool show. Um, and, you know, it's basically AWS, their version of Build and Ignite combined into one conference. Uh, to talk about all their cool offerings that they're putting out on the AWS platform. So registration for that's open over at uh, reinvent.awsevents.com. Uh, you'll probably find it in uh, you know pictures and whatnot on Facebook as well anytime you go out to an AWS page because it probably leaves a cookie behind. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, a couple more things I'll throw out there since we're talking events and we're throwing them at the end and nobody listens to this stuff anyway. Uh, Office 365 Saturday, so formerly SharePoint Saturday. Uh, they've kind of changed the spin for Australia, and it's not just about SharePoint anymore. It's about Office 365 and other technologies. Uh, so that is getting ready to kind of spin up its 2015 season. Uh, so Perth is going to be on the 23rd of May. Uh, and then Sydney is going to be following that on the 13th of June. So if folks are in either of those cities uh, and are interested in uh, checking out some of the new content in the Office 365, whether that's um, you know everything from uh, Exchange Online and Link Online down to uh, SharePoint Online, there'll still be SharePoint stuff. Um, and I'd imagine that the event organizers will probably have some Azure and other nice stuff in there as well. Uh, so that's getting ready to kick off, like I said, the 2015 season. Hmm. Very cool. Uh, I know the Office 365 Saturday stuff has been somewhat on the down low back here in the States, but uh, with all the transitions and announcements, it would not surprise me to see uh, you know more and more of the events kind of transition that way and no longer just be wholly SharePoint focused. Yeah. Oh, hey, I forgot. Uh, we're going to New York City in July, right? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if we're officially allowed to say that, but I'm guessing Becky Iserman uh, probably isn't listening to us. So, yeah. Um, July, mid-July, end of July. I think it's end of July. Uh, we'll be going back in and talking about worst practices of SharePoint. So I'm guessing, you know, we can probably uh, probably put in a lot of the pain that you and I have uh, dealt with for the past year and a half um, with, uh, you know, so many of the silly things that we've seen users try yes. to do. How to blow up your farm in three easy steps. Step one, log into the server directly. Step two, let Dan touch the keyboard. Hey, wait a second. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's going on. I'm excited about that. Um, I, am, uh, I am still working to see what other conferences uh, I can get us into later this year as well. Let's let's uh, keep the band together, and uh, it'll be a little easier to travel, you know, when I don't have to fly sixteen hours just to get back to LA. Well, you know that is uh, that is kind of an issue. Um, yeah, so hopefully you uh, your <laughs> your coming back will make uh, you know dogfish head runs a little bit easier. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I, I can always have you grab me some ice cream, too, right, from Mitchell's? Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. I'm more than happy to go up to Cleveland to grab some of that for you. Perfect. Yep. Um, so anything else? Uh, huh. So they're not an official sponsor, but uh, the folks over at Upsgility, um Apparently they uh, they opened up their website with a bunch of training materials around Azure and other topics. So uh, I don't know if you have uh, have you checked out their website yet, but I think they've got like an intro to IaaS uh, that's available out there that does a pretty good job. I mean, Michael knows his stuff, and uh, being kind of the guy that built the PowerShell commandlets for Azure, um, at least their initial release, uh, I think he's probably got a good handle on uh, what. Opsgility's, uh, you know, courses for, uh, you know, teaching basic Azure stuff. Yeah, I think it's a nice tie-in to some of the content that's out on uh, Microsoft Virtual Academy. Uh, so there's some, it, it makes for a nice introduction to uh, IaaS in general, uh, and then IaaS within kind of the uh, Azure world and, and what that means and kind of impacts on some of the PaaS services. And then if you want deeper dive stuff uh, in that free training vein, um, you can head over to MVA and they have some uh, deeper dive courses on uh, identity and compute and networking that kind of fill fill the void there. Yeah, I guess um, I'm curious. Uh, I haven't had a chance to poke around too much at the Upstility site, but uh, if my memory serves me correctly, they were going to have some deep dives uh, that were paid content, but on very, very niche uh, areas. So I'm I'm curious to see what they're what they're going to offer there. Yeah, well, keep an eye out and let us know, and we'll follow along. Yep. You wanna you wanna close this browser down? Uh, yeah. Let's power the power the whole thing down.
So one thing that we completely forgot to do, and I guess we can save this for the after show. Uh, you saw the note from uh, John Bachtel. Bachtel. Nope. I didn't set up uh, forwarding on that for you, did I? Uh, I have that account hooked up to Mail. I don't check it. Hold on, hold on. It's upgrading my database. Ding. Done. Let's see. The last time I pulled an email was March 11th. So John Bachtel wrote us a quick note. <clears throat> um, he, uh, he mentioned that my audio seemed to always be a little screwy. Um, Hopefully this week uh, I've got the gain cranked up a little bit better, trying to project a little bit better, spitting at the pop filter. Um, anyway, uh, he was curious about what we thought about App Harbor versus Azure. Um, I don't know if you've played around with App Harbor at all or checked it out. I did a cursory look and it looked like it was more of uh, kind of a PaaS platform for .NET. Um, yep. But I guess, you know, kind of my thought was or my thinking behind it was while that's great and while they do have uh, the ability to push code, um, .NET code and whatnot, you know, it's more that PaaS capability. Um, and really, to me, it seems more like it's uh, a PaaS capability for um, strictly, you know, websites with worker roles and whatnot in the background, um, but also with the ability to do some of the, uh, I don't want to say life cycle management components, but uh, the ability to, you know, do different checks and whatnot before it actually gets pushed into kind of that that, uh, that runtime where users are actually accessing it. Uh, yeah, App Harbor is more like um, Heroku, right? If you've ever heard of that yeah. kind of offering. Uh, so a lot of this stuff, uh, like App Harbor specifically is covered by Azure App Services, uh, where you'll probably get a little bit more bang for your buck. So um, App Harbor pricing is uh, it, it's kind of pricey, right? So they base everything on their worker units, and uh, so it looks like you're looking at about fifty bucks a month for two worker units, and depending on uh, where you host in Azure, like what region you're out of. Uh, you should be able to get to right about that price or maybe even a little bit cheaper if you can stay in the free tier, like if you don't need SSL or uh, uh, SNI or any of those kind of things or like a custom um, uh, custom domain name. Uh, one of the other reasons I'm, I'm always, you know, it, it's tough to recommend services like App Arbor in the world that we live in uh, because typically we're a little more full life cycle, right? So um, it's one thing to look at the code side of it and say, okay, here you go, you can deploy .NET code, and yes, you get a website, um, and you get CI and integration. Uh, so that's awesome. But I can do all those things inside of uh, Azure App Service, and I also get Logic Apps. I get connectivity out of the box to uh, Azure AD if I have some other kind of uh, identity needs, right? If I need to tie into... Uh, like a Google or a Facebook or something like that. I can I can run all that stuff through ACS and let it be done. And it all lives in one place. It's one bill, one provider. Um, and then I get a bunch more portability too, right? Because I've got 19 data centers to choose from, so or regions. So I can kind of push services all around the world and, it, and it's all built in. Um, I think companies like this kind of have a, a 
tough go of it now. Uh, when you look at things like either app services and the deployment model on that side, or even if you go over to AWS and look at Beanstalk and uh, some of the offerings that go into that, right? And, you know, in the other thing that I think you're going to buy in the Microsoft world, so if you look at being able to deploy .NET code, uh, that's great and all. But if I go to something like uh, Beanstalk or Azure App Services, uh, you're going to be able to deploy really anything, right? I, I can do Java, I can do PHP, I can do Ruby, um, anything that they've already installed a something on the IIS side for me to go ahead and run those bits and pieces. Um, yeah, I, I don't I, Stuff like this is a tough sell these days, right? Uh, you know, it might be nice for kind of free tiers and getting spun up, but again, uh, Azure is going to have all that stuff for you as well. Uh, just go ahead and create an account and you get your $200 credit. And as long as you're not consuming any spend, your credit runs out and you can continue to run in that free tier forever. Yeah, I guess I looked at it and I kind of just said to myself, um, more along the lines of uh, typically, you know, like you said, kind of that full life cycle or full integration. Uh, if I'm if I'm going to go down the path of putting an app up into the cloud, uh, I'm going to want a way to not have to reduplicate my effort every time I have a one-off cloud app that I'm posting uh, when it comes to like identity. And sure, I know I can go use OpenID and I can go uh, attach, let users log into my service that way, but it's, it's still a pain to have to do that for every single app that I'm going to host up in uh, something like App Harbor where I can, you know, either AWS or Azure uh, you know, instantiate directory services and use that and have that synchronized in some fashion uh, to be able to hold those identities. And I think perhaps some folks just kind of gloss over that and forget that um, because they're not thinking the full, you know, how's this app going to work with everything else that I've got. So personally, I would probably steer clear of App Harbor, um, not because I don't think they make a good product, but more just along the lines of uh, there's more than, you know, more than life to just... Uh, being able to throw my app out there for development purposes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's all a platform play, right? So if you want to lock yourself into kind of a, a smaller set of like the .NET platform, then that might be okay. Uh, but if you go to Azure, AWS, or another one of these larger providers, you kind of open up that, that wider service set and everything else. So you're, you're going to get similar offerings across them. But at the end of the day, kind of bang for your buck and uh, supportability and, and a bunch of those other things, you're probably going to be better off in one of the larger larger guys. Yep. Um, I'm with you on that uh, wholeheartedly. Um, one of the other things John Bechtel was uh, <clears throat> curious if we could talk about, um, if this URL loads up for me. I don't know about you, but the Channel 9 stuff seems to... Uh, have been running a little bit slow probably because everybody's going and scraping it but yeah um, that's why i just download the individual sessions and call it a day yeah so uh he was also curious what our thoughts were on the mvp panel for sharepoint online on premises and everything in between did you get a chance to watch that one uh i have not watched this one yet i've been looking for recommendations from folks on ones to watch uh so if, if you've hit it up, uh, feel free to have at it. But 
Uh, looks like Channel 9 is blowing up for me right now because I get that wonderful server error and application and a .NET runtime error. Yeah, I, I find it interesting that this uh, – I got that one a couple minutes ago too and I just did a refresh and it kicked me over to another uh, content server. So hopefully that uh, clears itself up for you. But um, it really just kind of makes me chuckle when I read the description of this one where it says this session is designed to help uh, ITIs and ITDMs, so IT decision mission decision makers and I guess influencers uh, find the right cloud formula to deploy based on practical business and technical considerations. This is a must not miss session for any IT pro. Yeah. Uh, I I missed it, Dan. I must not be one of those must not miss, uh, must miss. Weird wording, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I like the five people that are on the panel. I'm sure they've got great insights. Uh, I guess, I don't know, I'm curious because each, uh, not having watched the session, I really hope the way that it was uh, put together was, you know, determining what your requirements are for, you know, what your workloads are, whether or not they work in the cloud, um, whether or not you can actually run them in the cloud. Uh, If you're going to run them in the cloud, do you have, you know, risk and mitigation things you have to take care of, things along those lines. Uh, it would not uh, would not surprise me knowing you know if Dan Holm was on this board he probably went through the whole matrix of uh, things that you should probably ask as questions to yourself before you decide where you're going to put something but uh, I'm, I'm curious what the actual session ended up being I think this is the one that uh, there's a picture of Mark Anderson with a microphone asking a question to them um, where it's something like uh, no good can come from this uh, but. I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what this session's actually like. Uh, I might actually watch it. Darn it. Yep. That's one more video yep. to watch. Yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead and watch it and talk about it next week. I'm willing to bet that it's going to be uh, business-focused, uh, especially just based on the, the panel and, um, you know, like uh, Jen Mason and Laura Rogers aren't highly technical IT pros. They, t- they tend to be more on that kind of no-code uh, business solution side of things. Um, you, you know, I, I look at things like this and um, I, I, I kind of struggle a bit with some of them because uh, we spend so much time talking about the business value of uh, going to a, a cloud-based deployment or uh, even some of these hybrid scenarios um, that you know, when the rubber meets the road, we need to start talking about the technical value of things or uh, some of the technical debt that can be incurred by going there. Right. So it, it might be a little bit less than you, than your organization experiences today, but there's going to be some, uh, so, so some measure of it, right. To push those things forward and, and get them out there. Um, I, I know I spend quite a bit of my time, uh, you know, reviewing things that we do for uh, for different organizations or, you know, we provide um, kind of envisioning services is one of the things uh, that uh, the company I work for provides. And we spend quite a bit of time going back and saying, okay, yes, we can do these things from a business perspective. Here's how they're going to technically align to what you want to do. And here's the impacts of that. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that comes up quite a bit is, uh, if you're just on premises and you're doing everything custom 
you know, you can make it up as you go along, right? It re you can be, um, you know, the sky is the limit when you develop something, right? If you if you need a widget to do uh, X, Y, and Z, then awesome. Just go ahead and spin those things up and do that. Uh, but sometimes when we go to something like a managed offering, like a SaaS offering, like SharePoint Online, uh, it's not going to be able to do all those things. So we need to understand them and, and be able to uh, push them out and articulate those to uh, clients and kind of who's going to be building those things um, along the way. I, I was reading uh, uh, something we were doing this morning, uh, and it was, uh, you know, a client was coming back and saying, um, hey, we need an uh, information architecture for SharePoint Online, and we need, to, uh, we need to deploy a couple of content type hubs, so we want to plan what URLs those are going to live at and things like that. And somehow it made it through the whole process, and, and nobody had looked at it, and then, you know, Scott's got to be the guy in the back of the room raising his hand and saying, guys, you can't do that. You already have a content type hub. You only have one. It's managed at the tenancy level because it's tied into MMS. And so now, you know, they had all these assumptions about what they were going to be able to do because they were thinking about it like an on-premises system uh, still. And they really hadn't, no, no one had had that knowledge to sit down and say like, okay, there's going to be a technical impact to going down this path and, and adopting this service. And it's not the end of the world. We just need to change the way we do it, right? It used to be um, you could build your shoebox to be whatever size and dimension or anything else you wanted it to be. Uh, and when you go over to some of these more managed offerings, uh, and, and specifically a lot of the software as a service stuff, you've got to figure out how to fit your business inside the shoebox. So it's really nice to talk about the business value of doing things. Uh, but we've also got to remember the technical value of being able to kind of cram into the constraints that are put upon us. You know, it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned that there's, uh, da, 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 da. there's a session that Scott Jamison did, um, about using information architecture with SharePoint and Office 365, um, that breaks it down, uh, really, I won't say granular level, but breaks it down enough that, uh, you know, folks, get a clue as to how to actually categorize their information to make it useful inside SharePoint. So uh, I don't know if you, if you get a chance, it's BRK3190. Um, I want to check it out at some point. Um, I, I haven't watched the video, but the way that he broke the slides out, going back to what we talked about earlier, uh, the slides really just kind of speak for themselves. So I'd be curious what, uh, what Scott Jamison added on top of that, but kind of going back to that, uh, that MVP panel. Um, I think not having watched it, uh, I'm, I'm really curious to kind of see uh, what the five different uh, mindsets brought to it. Um, because all, all five of them have been working in the SharePoint and Office 365 space for a while, um, doing different facets. So I know there are some things that uh, I probably, you know, during uh, determination of where a solution should go, um, may look over. Um, kind of like you mentioned, if you're working with an organization and folks are like, oh, yeah, we'll just build out all these extra managed, uh, managed paths inside of SharePoint online. Um, yeah, whoops. <laughs> uh, can't necessarily do it inside that office 365 SharePoint online space yet. Uh, don't know if they're actually going to add the ability to do that. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but you know, again, it's just, uh, the diversity of thought fortunately does have some, uh, some added benefits and, I think, you know, in this case, uh, probably just the little label they had for the session was a little bit off. 
Yeah, you know, we'll we'll make a note of it and go back and spend some time on it next week. I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. Um, did you uh, did you watch the session on migration by chance? Uh, and some of the new APIs and things that they've got coming along. Yeah. Yeah. Those those look pretty stinking sweet. The fact that uh, I guess it was what three times the speed um, max speed of what gets throttled through CSOM. Uh, by creating those migration packages? Yeah, it's interesting, right? So CMPs are back, um, or kind of a so, some revision of those, whatever that ends up being, if they rev the API a little bit more. Uh, some of the requirements on the Azure side were a little bit strange. Like, I wonder what they're doing on the back end. You know, like, it, it's one thing to go ahead and create storage containers. You know, you can do that through the UI. You can do uploads and things like that. That's pretty easy. Um, but then there's that weird requirement to have to snapshot your storage containers and you need two containers, one with the package and another one with the manifest and everything else. A uh, little strange. Um, hopefully some of the storage or storage, some of the migration vendors will make that a little bit easier, right? Um, and automate some of that uh, process for us. So, hey, I want to do a migration. Great. Let's build your package. Let's have our tooling go ahead and provision um a couple of storage accounts for you and, and get that piece going. Uh, one thing that <laughs> I, I, I kind of noticed, and uh, I think it's going to throw some folks for a loop. So have you gone through this process where you spin up a new Office 365 tenant and it has the little link at the bottom that says, uh, here, go ahead and uh, go over and look at Azure? Have you, have you seen that in the Office 365 administration UI? So down at the very bottom, it has a link over to your Azure AD. Uh, I have not spun one up in a little over a month. So no, I have not seen that. Right. I know that if you look in licensing, it has a little bit about uh, Azure rights management is explicitly like split out as a license that you can assign or take away from people, sort of. Yeah, so so if you spin up a, or if you already have a paid Office 365 subscription, so not a not a trial, yep, uh, but if you paid for it, yep, um, and you you go into your Office 365 admin portal, all the mm-hmm. way down on the lower left, there's there's a link that says uh, Azure Azure AD on it, and if you click that, it hops you over to the Azure tenant uh, that hosts your AD subscription. So if you're on a paid uh, Office 365, what it does is, um, if you've ever signed up for Azure, it walks you through like three steps. It collects your information, collects your payment information, and it says, yeah, you confirm and do that. If you go through and click that link and you're on a paid Office 365 subscription, what it actually does is it goes ahead and it skips the payment collection portion and it creates a singular subscription that's free and totally free, and you can't add any services to it because there's no payment added to it. So now what's going to happen is you're going to have all these folks that have gone out over the past couple months, and they've clicked that Azure AD link, and they've created their Azure subscription, right? So they can see what's going on in Azure AD and maybe create um, AD apps and all those other things. And then they're going to come and say, oh, I want to use that for my storage account for Office 365 to do migrations. And they're not going to be able to add a storage account because the only thing that's available in that subscription is Azure AD. Awesome. So now you're going to have to go out and create a second Azure subscription and some more confusion and some other things. So I, I can't wait to explain that one to clients, right? We've been going down the path of saying, hey, did you know you have an Azure subscription, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, so I've actually been walking through with some of my stuff, even for demos and things like that, and making sure that I associate payment data with a subscription um, just while I'm still in trial mode so that I can have access to all the Azure services and not just AAD. Hmm. It's a little weird, that, that flow. Yeah, I mean, for me, it flows me over and then it says you're not a paid account because I'm using one that has a subscription service paid for, not by me. Um, and then when I actually click on the link that takes me to subscribe to an Azure subscription, it's just a nice blank page. Yep, so that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, nice. so I, I think it's going to be a confusing thing for folks as... Uh, as we start to get to this world all of a sudden where, you know, we've been talking about how Azure drives a lot of the backend uh, services for Office 365. And so they're kind of surfaced through this UI in Office 365, driven out of Azure. Um, and now as we want folks to start to consume more services, or, uh, you know, we don't want them to start to consume more services. We just want them to uh, do a better job at understanding what's available to them. And if they want to consume those services, go forth and do so. Uh, but it gets really confusing depending on subscriptions and what you have spun up and, and all the other things that kind of exist in between. So the better part is when I try and go sign up, uh, I'm greeted by a blank page. Yeah, don't do it in Chrome. Do it in Firefox. <sighs> but don't do it in IE either. either cause I'm sure it won't work there. Jeez, 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 jeez. Um. Oh, well. Uh, so whenever you do get back, are we going to try and put together that 10,000-piece uh, Star Wars Millennium Falcon? Let's do it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you think Amanda's actually going to let you uh, go away for that long? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be down in Florida and commuting up. So we'll consider it part of my rent, right? I'll, I'll just help you put that together. Okay, yeah, it'll be out on the uh, kitchen table, and uh, yeah, yeah, it'll work. Oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so I guess the only other workaround that I can think of is that workaround where you log in with a Azure subscription that you already have, and then you add the Active Directory. Is that uh, kind of the next best thing? Yep, yeah, that would be the next best thing, but then you're back to two Azure subscriptions, right? So there, there's a path you can walk down where you can have one Azure subscription and get everything to where it needs to be, and there's this other path where you can walk down where you can have multiple subscriptions for the sake of having multiple subscriptions because the sign-up flow is different depending on where you come from and how you get in there. Because if you didn't click that link from Office 365 and you just went to Azure and, and signed in and it said, oh, you don't have a subscription, create one, um, it's going to ask you for some payment information. But if you come through with that special token from the admin portal, it says, hey, uh, we don't need to collect any payment information because we're going to spin up an account with just an Azure AD. And it's really weird. I, you know, if you've ever, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll dig up a blog post where I can find you a screenshot or something like that. But when you log into the Azure portal, uh, so you, if you're in the old portal, you know how you get all the icons down the left-hand side, and there's like 20 or 30 of them for all the different services? Yep. There is only one icon, and it's for Azure AD, and that's it. It's really, really weird. <laughs> huh. Uh, so this will make me cry here for a moment. Um, 
What the heck? Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. Eh, you'll figure it out. Yeah, so I went in and did the whole, uh, I'm going to log out and log back in with the other account, Dealy. Yep. Um, and it brought me back to the account.activedirectory.windowsazure.com forward slash profile instead of the actual management portal, even though I told it to go to the management portal. That is weird. But then my other directory is now in there, um, which is good. Uh, but there's which subscription is it associated with? <laughs> Good luck. Oh man, really? You've got to be kidding me. Now I, I might let you go and just uh, fix that whole mess that you just created for yourself. <laughs> 